Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to welcome to the podcast uh, two first time guests, Jennifer Middlestadt, who is a professor of history at Rutgers and Mark Wilson, who's a professor of history at UNC Charlotte. Uh, and they're both the authors of many different books. You should check out their work in general, but they're here today because uh, we'd like to talk about their new edited volume, uh, The Military and the Market. So uh, Jennifer and Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. So why don't we just start with the most basic question? Um, maybe you could give listeners who know nothing about professional history sort of where the literature stands on military market relations, particularly because one of the um, major themes I've been drilling down on the on this podcast is that I don't think there's enough, enough professional historical work on basically the military state, the national security state. Uh, I've talked a lot about the international and transnational turns in U.S. diplomatic history, um, and I think they've uh, downplayed things like the national security state and the military industrial state, however you want to frame it. And it's interesting that this seems to come from more disciplinarily a business history perspective as opposed to diplomatic and international history. But I'm curious, uh, you know, I sort of threw out a lot there, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. I mean, I think that for us, we would say, um, in combining our intellectual backgrounds, that the two literatures that probably have looked at the uh, most in the historical profession have been business history, but also I would say the history of war and society, which is really more of the field that I found myself in for my own recent work. Um, and in in those two fields, actually, there was a variety of work on what we might think of broadly the military and the market that was percolating. But I think there is, in general, uh, a kind of lack of work or a kind of focus to that work that might sort of narrowly construe uh, what you call the military industrial complex. And I think part of what we wanted to do in this book is kind of go at the oversimplifications that come from much of the scholarship that does exist on the military-industrial complex, sometimes from a kind of security perspective, sometimes from political science, sometimes from economists who take a look at it, and kind of unpack it and, and see where we were. I think one of our major goals was to kind of disassemble a kind of simple functionalist relationship that many scholars and the general public, honestly, seems to assume exists between, you know, the, the military and the market, which is either that the military is this total command and control uh, kind of organization um, that sort of comes into conflict with the, you know, vibrant, diverse, competitive uh, capitalist market, or to kind of see uh, the military really as kind of a, a functionalist tool of the capitalist uh, market, where capitalists control the military and control military spending. And a lot of what we wanted to do was take what we saw going on in business history, take what we saw going on in war and society, and kind of unpack or disaggregate the kind of simplistic ideas and get a little more understanding of the variety of different ways in which we might think about markets instead of just like corporate control of the military in the U.S. 
disaggregate what we think of the military, which is a really diverse and multifaceted institution uh, with both a lot of state kind of uh, organizations and functions, but also non-state ones. And to try to see what we could see uh, from a kind of more disaggregated, less functionalist perspective about the relationship between military institutions and market institutions from the 19th century to the present. Mark, would you like to add anything to that? Well, I won't have too much to add, but uh, I'll just suggest, you know, to just echo Jennifer, we were trying to do go a little bit broader, I think, than a lot of what uh, pockets of the literature have done. So just to take a couple examples, there is actually like a lot of political science stuff on how parochial or not parochial Congress is, right, when it comes to the military-industrial complex. And there's a lot of quantitative work on that, for example. And there's also a lot of kind of insider lessons learned history on acquisition reform history. And, you know, folks from Harvard Business School started looking at the defense market, you know, in the early Cold War. And that literature has developed over time, and the Pentagon has its own studies. But they, they tend to be quite technical and narrow. Um, and so part of what we were trying to do in this volume is to kind of open that up and consider a broader range of industries and to talk more about um, national politics. And just to, you know, to conclude, I mean, to get to your question about, you know, how the historical literature may be changing, you know, one of the things uh, we tried to talk about in the introduction of the book is how there actually is a lot of exciting new work um, that is opening this up. And so there's a lot of really interesting stuff on overseas bases and labor in the kind of Cold War U.S. military empire. Um, and Tim Barker, who is a contributor to our um, volume, has a big new dissertation that kind of makes the point that you are making about the, the lack of literature on the national security state. Um, but I think that is changing. And there are a bunch of uh, junior scholars, including Tim and others, who are kind of starting to build that out. So it's kind of an exciting time to to look at that, I think. It's interesting because, I mean, if I had to guess, most of those scholars won't get jobs. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where a lot of this field actually actually goes. Because uh, this is, is very much a history directly related to, to sort of policy choices. And it just, as I was reading your volume, it just reminds me that the, the historical profession is not reproducing itself. So <laughs> my guess is that a lot of this you know, it, it just raises interesting questions about the role of, of intellectuals and in, in, in history, which is something on my mind, I'm writing an op-ed about that. Now, um, so I know one of the major issues of, of, of what you hope to accomplish in the book is basically to complexify the type of functionalist or corporatist understandings of the role of the military in the market. But in addition to complexifying, are there any like just broad, broad takeaways that we can understand about the U.S. military relationship? Let's just keep it to after 1945, let's say the era of U.S. hegemony, which I would date to 45. Um, I think I think one of the most salutary effects turns the literature has taken is that the Cold War is, is being increasingly viewed by younger scholars. <laughs> Again, you probably won't get jobs, uh, but less as an ideological struggle and more about the U.S., search for primacy, you know, that, that narrative is becoming clearer 30 years after the Cold War ended. But I was just curious if, if how you see sort of what are the major arguments or takeaways from this volume and how do you see your story interacting with the, the era of U.S. hegemony? 
I guess there's two answers there. I mean, you asked us to focus on post 45, but of course, I'm just going to bust right out of that right away and say, I think one of the big takeaways from the book is that relationships between military actors and market actors have really profoundly affected both like the kind of functioning of U.S. the U.S. state uh, markets, whether they be labor markets or consumer markets. So well outside of the realm of um, production of sort of materiel and weapons and things like that. Uh, far more than we have recognized because of a long, close interrelationship between public and private military function in the United States and the ways that that has changed over time. So I think it's really important to assert a kind of uh, longer connection, uh, something that isn't unique to say only enlargement of the U.S. military in the 20th century as an important insight. And also to say that Looking for military market relationships and things like labor and sex work, in addition to looking for it in areas like the production of ships or bombs, is really, really important. And I think we want that to be a major takeaway. If we turn to the 20th century. Just very quickly, uh, uh, Jennifer, yeah. if I just have a question directly. Is that it's, a, it's, imp, it's in, important, obviously, on its face. But could you maybe explain sort of the intersections of how when we study defense production, then we study sex work around military bases? Like, what is the integrated sort of whole that we're telling uh, that that story that you're telling? Um, I mean, of course, the stories are important in and of themselves. But in, in terms of sort of theoretical I mean, I think our, Mark can probably speak to this too, but part of what we aimed to capture, capture here was a broader theoretical conception of what, cons, what a market is, right? Is to think about market as not just uh, corporations, to think of it as not just, you know, sort of traditional businesses, um, but to think of, um, you know, and, and not necessarily institutions, to, to, to think of them as uh, sites, places, and relationships um, that people have in the realm, not just of kind of, um, you know, production of traditional military um, hardware and things like that, but in the realm of their kind of your everyday labor relationship in the town that you work in. And we might think of the military as relying then on this wide range of market relationships, market institutions and market ideologies in different ways and at different times. And it makes just as much sense, for example, to think about how the military might need certain kinds of weapons production as it does to think about how the military keeps morale high by relying on sex work um, in different places. These are both important needs for what we might call um, military effectiveness, you know, to use the military's term. Um, and they both rely on markets just of quite different kinds and some of which have been highlighted by policymakers, scholars, um, elected officials and others which have been, you know, quite hidden or tucked away or viewed as unimportant, but in fact are quite important. Can I just have a clarifying question? So when you say markets here, how do they differentiate from all forms of human exchange that have occurred throughout history? What is sort of <laughs> the, the, the definition of market being used? Well, the, I think part of what is kind of fun about the book is that, um, we're addressing that in a number of ways. And so on, on the one hand, you could see markets just as places of exchange where you're using supply and demand and pricing to determine relationships, right? And that, that's not, you know, that's kind of a historically specific thing. 
you you can have exchanges under other settings. But I think part of the um, contribution of the book, and particularly in the chapter that Jennifer and I contributed, is we're talking also about markets as kind of very idealized um, you know spaces and. And part of what we were interested in in our chapter is thinking about how the military, the U.S. military, has thought about that kind of a market, right, as, as kind of an idealized space in which you get efficient outcomes happening through competition. Um, um, and what we argue in our chapter, and I, you know, I think other parts of the book also hit on this as well, is that the military is thinking about that has actually changed over time. And you can see a kind of long run trend in the direction of embrace, right. Of kind of believing in those kind of idealized markets as the best way to get what you want. And I think that's a big part of the book um, and particularly our chapter that that's, I think worth thinking about for, for historians and for, for military folks and others. Yeah, to me, one of the great theoretical questions of the 21st century is how do nation-state-based militaries interact with the genuinely global capitalist market? That, that, that I think that books like this really help you help you explore. Um, but Mar- uh, Mark and Jennifer, from what you said, why don't we just then turn to your chapter? But <laughs> Jennifer, I'm totally fine with going back as far as humanly possible. So why don't we, uh, if we could give our listeners a sense of sort of U.S. military market relations going back to the founding of the Republic. I mean, I'm sure you could go back even to the first moments of colonization and clearly back into various societies on both sides of the Atlantic. But, you know, let's, let's limit our analysis to the formal founding of the United States and, and then go from there. And however you want to begin is totally okay with me and whoever wants to start. Yeah, well, let me say a little bit about this. Uh, we, as Jennifer suggested, I think maybe before we went on air, we had a version of our contribution to the volume that was a lot longer and did a lot more with the pre-World War II era. And so we tried to, to do more of that there. But part of our kind of long-run narrative is the story of this shift away from a kind of more mixed system in which you see a lot of direct military control of production and um, and knowledge about production in the direction of privatization. And from the early years of the Republic, you know, the U.S. military set up its own manufacturing establishments, including Navy yards and arsenals. At the same time, it dealt with a ton of contractors. It relied really heavily on contractors for transportation, but also for some high-tech stuff like small arms were made through this kind of combination of Army in-house arsenals and, you know, private contractors like Eli Whitney and, and so forth in the Connecticut River Valley. Um, and it's, it's a kind of really complicated story. I think, you know, I, I tried to influence people's thinking about this with my first book, which is, which is old now, but it's, uh, about how the North, you know, went about supplying its armies during the Civil War. And I tried to, uh, convince people that the North really embraced a, a, a mixed system in which they actually ramped up their own in-house capacities and they weren't always comfortable or willing to just kind of go to contractors 
to get all that they want. And I was trying to disrupt a narrative in which you have like a confederacy, which is required to use wartime socialism because they have no other choice versus the free market northern war economy. I think the reality is for decades, you know, from the 18th century into the 20th century, the kind of default normal mode um, for the U.S. military is to kind of embrace a lot of its own kind of in-house capacities for uh, providing goods and services in combination with reliance on contractors. I think if if that's one thing that people can take away from the long-run history, it's important because a lot of people, I think, assume the opposite, that the U.S. was this liberal, democ- you know, liberal capitalist um, nation and it always just you know, went to the market for everything it needed. So a couple of questions there. Could we talk for a second about that in comparative perspective in the 19th century? Like, how does this compare to other military states arising at this time? Is the U.S. doing something unique or is this just a product of the 19th century state capacity plus industrialization? You get this sort of ad hoc mixed system. I think it's pretty uh, it's pretty unexceptional, and the U.S. models a lot of its um, practices on you know what it sees in France and Britain in the in the early 19th century. But there are some kind of interesting divergences, like the the British end up using contractors for warship building more than the Americans. Um, so the the U.S. naval shipbuilding enterprise is actually more socialized than the British. Um, for for several decades and things like that, but I don't think it's um, I think it's a case of non exceptionalism, really. I would also say that one of the things that we learn, um, I mean, this is through Mark's work, really, that I've learned this because I'm really a historian of the 20th century, is that the reasons for this mixed economy are also really complex. It's not just as though oh you know, the state turns toward the private sector when it can't meet its needs. It's really that there's this wide combination of people who are really interested in what's going on in building up U.S. military capacity. And so the actors who are involved in either advocating for the growth of in-house functions might be for example, trained military officers, you know, who've built expertise in certain kinds of uh, engineering and things like that, and who can see certain needs. They might be local Congress people who are tired of seeing uh, sort of windfall profits from from local officials who are wielding too much influence where they are. It might be business owners who've come together to coalesce in a certain area to ask for something. And there's a kind of push and pull and tug and a kind of unpredictability to it. Um, that kind of defy broad uh, generalizations and kind of reinforce this like non-exceptional um, history uh, within the United States. And I, you know, one of the things we're trying to do with this book is recover a lot of those actors so that even today, when we think about the current relationship between the U.S. military and the market complex that it is, we don't over-naturalize it. We don't assume that it can't be changed. We don't assume that the neoliberal thrust towards privatization is some kind of law or something that will continue on, uh, you know, forever. If we recover some of these, you know, actors who are really important, the contingency, the messy mix of things that happen is quite unexceptional. It helps us recover the possibilities for challenging the way some of military and market relationships are conducted today. And we really want people who work in those worlds to think about those things. Part, I, I should say that part of where this book came from is that I spent a year 
at the U.S. Army War College in 2017, 2018, and I taught a class on the military and the market. And part of what was going on there was the give and take between the colonels I was teaching, them sort of telling me things about their experiences, having conducted a lot of these relationships on the ground, and me giving them historical models for them to think of themselves more actively as actual policy makers who could take what they were learning in the classroom and on the ground and perhaps challenge some of the orthodoxies to, you know, to which they'd been trained in business schools uh, and in their military professional careers. No, I, I think that's that's really important work. And it's funny when I was reading your chapter, I'm like, each one of these paragraphs is like a book or two. You know, there's just so much, there's so much um, uh, there and it's so rich. And one of the most important things I think that that you make, and it's totally... I mean, I, I know this is almost common, like it seems right, is that, you know, the last 40 years of professionalization of the military and sort of imbibing the ideolo uh, ideological preferences of business schools have really reshaped sort of this foundational social institution. But um, before we get to there, I just wanted to talk for a second because I'm an intellectual historian. I'm interested in ideology. Um, could, could we maybe just briefly talk? I, I think like the big moment, we could even just center it on wars because that's probably easier. Is like, what role does the military play in the American imagination um, in terms of ideology and liberalism in the sort of late 18th and 19th centuries? Because so much of the, of the focus on the 20th century, your work was on neoliberal ideology and how that informed things. What, 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 what type of ideological formations are shaping the late 18th and 19th centuries, the revolutionary and civil war up to World War I? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, so that's something, you know. I'm going to leave it to the 19th century historian. Because right, there's like Republicans, right? I mean, I think like it, it, in the Constitution, it's, it's a civic republicanism, right? And it has, it, it says things about the military <laughs> and, and the military and, and, and gun ownership and things like that. So I'm just curious, like, and, and the argument that every historian makes is about like five seconds after the Constitution was signed, civic republicanism went by the wayside and you have the parties and the interests. But I was just talking, uh, if we could talk a little bit about what was being expressed through the state's relationship with the military in that earlier moment. Yeah, you know, so th this is not something we get into in this volume at all. And if I, you know, kind of stretch my um, my memory a little bit, I mean, one of the things that I think you, that's interesting about early U.S. military history is there is this kind of ideal, right, of, of this kind of um, militia-based um, armed force, and there's this ideal that, you know, the citizens will defend the country. But what I found, I mean, going back, again, going back to my early kind of reading in this in the 1990s, what I found and then what I started to write about myself was, you know, you, you do get the kind of quick um, emergence of a professional military that is very much at odds with a lot of the kind of broader political ideals of, of the Republic. And, you know, part of what I wrote about and what a bunch of other great early military historians have written about is kind of the emergence of the profession and the clash between these kind of professional values and the rest of society. And, and part of, to be honest, you know, part of what I, what attracted me about the military officers I wrote about in my early work was their kind of, um, refusal to defer to capitalists or politicians or what have you. They were a kind of a weird um, aristocracy of sorts, right, um, who kind of uh, were, were willing to, to kind of challenge all that. And that affected how they went about building military economic power, 
uh, I think, in interesting ways. So I don't know, you know, we're not intellectual historians, perhaps in the same way that that you are. So that might be not, not be too satisfying, but that's part of what I think about. I would say, though, that, that a lot of what we learn from early military market history uh, does have to do with, if it's not uh, directly about this relationship, it, it, the literature that Mark is talking about, the relationship between a kind of, um, yeah, civic republicanism and what the military is and its values. We do learn about the military's essential role in advancing sort of state building and infrastructure building in the early republic. You know, whole series, I mean, the Army Corps of Engineers is really the big story for many, many years in its, you know, its construction of infrastructure in various parts of the country, whether it be on the coast or in, you know, riverine areas, the entire push out west. If we want to think about the, you know, a kind of intellectual project associated with you know, settlement and the push westward um, uh, in in the United States. I think the military is quite central to that um, and and serving those goals. And it might be another way that that we think about those intellectual and ideological relationships. And that's particularly interesting, especially because I mean, I'm, you both know this as well as I do. When you look in like forty five, forty six, forty seven period, all the military officers are talking about the frontier and the military's role in sort of taming the frontier and what is the new frontier and what role is the military going to play. And I think you could get the old Turnerian, you know, frame on this and, and frontier thinking. Obviously, <laughs> the new frontier. Um, so why don't we then turn to the twentieth century and and where wherever you think it's important to start, and then we could get into sort of the post forty five. So Jennifer and Mark, whoever wants to start and, you know, World War One seems like a big moment to me. Um, and uh, obviously the Spanish-American War of 1898. Um, so uh, wh- wherever you would like to begin. Well, the, you know, again, to, just to kind of think about the, the, the broad narrative we're trying to sketch in our own chapter in the volume has to do with what we describe more or less as like a rise and then a fall of a kind of big multi-competent U.S. military. And so in the, in that early 20th century period that you're talking about, we're identifying that as perhaps a, a, a time in which there was a, a peak or, or kind of at least a, a kind of more normal, uh, historically normal combination, as we were suggesting earlier, of, of kind of public and private functions in which the military was actually, in many cases, growing its own ambit when it came to providing goods and services. So, building more dry cleaners or uh, bakeries or what have you, whether it be in the Philippines or whether it be um, in, the, in the U.S., um, and that endured, you know, into World War II. So, it was often um, what we saw, you know, kind of in our in our um, study, is that in this earlier period, in this pre 1950s period, the military was just as likely to tackle a problem by growing its own capacities as it was by saying, "Oh, let's find the best contractor and get it done that way." But World War II is really a turning point, and nobody knows this better than Mark. You know, when the military becomes really an an un- surpassedly enormous <laughs> in-house uh, producer, right, of many of its goods and services, even as it's simultaneously expanding contracting, you know, of necessity with, you know, thousands of, of private corporations, both within the U.S. Uh, 
and abroad. So I'm really just prompting you, Mark, to go on with your story of the big public military. <laughs> yeah, you wrote the book on this. So could you maybe just talk for a second to give listeners who might not have any idea, like, what is this U.S. military in the 40s? What is its planning? It's doing it's doing socialism, for lack of a better phrase. Could you give people, and give people a sense of like what actually happened with the military during World War II? And then the, the, the sheer size of it after the war. Yeah, so, you know, my own work is has been focused on the kind of big military-industrial mobilization, so I'll, I'll try to talk more about that for the moment. And I, I, I'll just back up and say, you know, when Jennifer and I started to work on this project, we were both coming off our second books. And so she, had, she was just publishing her book, The Military Welfare State, um, in which she talked about not just about the the Cold War, but actually she'd done quite a bit on the on the post Cold War on the kind of Clinton era neoliberal reforms, right? Um, and I had I was just kind of I'd kind of more or less finished a man, my my manuscript of my book, which was on was focused on the World War II industrial mobilization, but in which the last chapter traced a story of kind of post-war privatization. Anyway, having said that, I'll, I'll just go back and say one thing I hope your listeners will be willing to take away from my little one-minute uh, summary of this is, you know, it, it kind of drives me crazy that a lot of the um, memory of the U.S. military industrial mobilization for World War II stresses um, – kind of private entrepreneurs initiative and the conversion of existing corporate plants to make munitions, right? Uh, and of course that happened. You know, there are kind of dynamic entrepreneurs like Henry Kaiser and, and others, right? Um, there is conversion of like GM plants to make military trucks or whatever. But what I, what I describe in my book is a far more, what, uh, planned and socialized military-industrial mobilization in which you've got a kind of new deal on steroids, right, in the 40s where you've got the kind of big military organizations managing the flows of goods, of goods and services and also the, the U.S. government really building, you know, huge amounts of new greenfield production plants to make most of the stuff that was needed, you know, from aircraft engines to merchant ships and, you know, and on and on and on. Um, and I don't know if anybody really understands that or cares about it or appreciates it, but I think it's a very different story of what happened than often what people remember. And one of the things I've been gratified by in terms of the handful of people who did read my book is that I think there are actually some people see implications even for the present day if you're thinking about like, well, how do you um, mobilize to build a new energy regime? Like, what do you do? Um, there might be lessons to understand what actually happened under intense pressure in a, at a previous moment rather than this kind of myth of American entrepreneurial brilliance that is often the kind of takeaway um, so anyway, that's that partly answers your question, maybe. 
Uh, it's funny because I look at this from the research side, and it's very interesting, a similar process of mobilization and centralized planning and even centralized locating in places like the MIT Radiation Laboratory took place. But at least when you're talking about research, there's always a very strong conservative, small c, really pushback from people like Vin- uh, Vannevar Bush, you know, who succeeds in creating these forms of scientific industrial uh, government um, collaboration during and after World War two. And of course, what happens, and I'm, I'm just curious, I'd love to get your, your takes on it, because what, what happens is in my take in, in the military, or at least where, you know, you see very early on in 1946, the creation of Project RAND, which eventually becomes the model for, for military scientific thinking. It's going to become basically all privatized over the course of the next 70-ish years. Um, but it, it seemed to happen a little earlier in the research space than it did, you know, in the mind of the military than the body of the military, one might say. And I think that might relate to ideologies of scientific creativity. The idea was that like you couldn't put scientists in the military because you, they needed to be creative and, you know, they're, they all have long haired, long haired scientists. And it seems like that wasn't quite, there's, even though you might see a similar privatization in the military's body, the logics for it are different. So whoever wants to talk, could you maybe talk a little bit about like 45 to 55? Because that's when you really begin this, Jennifer. You, you, as you talk about the chapter, you really begin that you see the stirrings of privatization. One of the things that we were really wanted to do is recover this history of this array of sort of business people and their allies in Congress who work to pressure the military to put more of its functions back out for bid to the private sector. We think a little bit about what their uh, the ideology is that they mobilize for this. It's very much an ideology of, you know, free enterprise that we might read about in, you know, histories of you know, business histories of the the US. It's also closely connected to the anti-statism of anti-new dealers. Um, but what it really does is sort of imagine that the the functions of the military are not naturally government functions, but in fact that they are functions that can and should be fulfilled by private sector institutions that have expertise in various areas. So if it's transport, there are people who work in the private sector who can do transport. If it's production of weapons, there are people in the private sector who can do that. If it's cleaning of the barracks, there are people in the private sector who do that. So it's recovering the market of government function as its own. And we really like to you know, take a close look at this. And that period from 45 to 55 is a central moment in the built, the, the kind of success on the national stage of that movement. And this is what I find so compelling because they're basically the most capital P progressive institution in the U.S. is the U.S. military. And I think people don't realize that's this argument I made in this new chapter that just came out about RAND that's just called the progressive origins of Project RAND because these military people, particularly in the 40s and the 50s, and no, per- for the rest of the century, they imagine themselves as the vanguard of civilization, most literally. They're defending against Soviet communism and then figuratively it, that they're going to use the, the most modern forms of techniques and technologies and management to do these things. And I always think people always are surprised by that because the critique of 68 is that the military is conservative. No, no, no. It's liberal, you know, in, 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 in every meaningful form. So um, I was wondering if you could also just give a sense um, of, of how large the military is and what this deconstructing project, like it, it's quite a significant thing to undertake about, like the military is enormous. 
in, 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 uh, after World War II, even with a little bit of post-war demobilization, you get NSC 68 and 50 in the Korean War and all that. So could you just give a sense of like how large this institution is and what role it plays in the United States so that it's deconstructing people get the sense of what that meant? Yeah, so the, um, you know, we actually open our chapter with this um, report from the, the Navy Secretary um, who talks about all the stuff that the Navy's doing. Um, and the Navy alone, you know, at, as he describes it then, has what, over a million personnel of its own, half a million civilians being employed. They've got oil fields, they've got schools, they've got copper smelters, they've got ammunition plants. Um, so it's a, it's partly a matter of there, there's a lot more personnel in the early Cold War than there are today, for example. It's also got a bigger chunk of the, the U.S. economy, right? And, um, so by the mid fifties, you're looking like 10% of GDP is going to to defense stuff. Today, we're about 4%. We're still spending enormous sums, right? And in real dollar terms, today's um, are actually no, no lower. But just a huge amount of the U.S. economy is going into to kind of providing this giant military establishment. So putting it out to the private sector means putting out quite a bit. Right. That's a that's a very large market and a very lucrative market. I think one of the things that's remarkable is that it's a it's a bumpy road. We might expect that as soon as this critique is articulated and it has two Hoover commissions in the late 40s and early 50s that endorse it. And there's a sector in Congress and there's a turn away from the New Deal. You might think it's successful. And I think part of what we chart is that it is successful, but it's actually kind of a push and pull. And what you were talking about, Danny, is the the kind of progressive military you know, I've never sort of used that term, but I would say that military officers are influential, as are their allies in Congress, in resisting a surprising amount of this. And in particular, I think one of the things that's surprising is that there are times when even as it's offloading some of its functions, it decides to build a new new in-house functions. And I think in the area um, where we see services for personnel is where we see this most clearly. And and A.J. Murphy's chapter in our book on the world's biggest landlord describes the necessity in moving into the large peacetime Cold War military of providing for all of these personnel and their families. Now that more and more of them are married, the marriage ban has been lift, lifted. We've got to put them somewhere and do something with all of them. And in this capacity, the U.S. military starts to build up its in-house functions in those kind of support areas, what I call a welfare state, um, whether it's housing or after the AVF, when the pressure for this becomes even more intense to supply things to people of all ranks and their families, healthcare, childcare, counseling, recreation, you name it, the military up through the Reagan area after so many things have been offloaded that are you know, to the private sector that continues to build up its in-house capacity in these areas. So while eventually those will be put out in the 90s and 2000s under uh, you know Clinton and George Bush, they are in-house up through the late 1980s and, and early 1990s. So it's not a simple story of the success of a political coalition of free enterprisers who mobilize against the military state. It's a complex story that they, for now uh, and over time, did, I think, effectively 
win. Um, but I don't know that the story of the way it plays out gives us the lesson that it's, uh, it had to be or that it was inevitable. There was a lot of push and pull and unexpected uh, shifts back and forth. And what's really interesting to you is that bad body metaphor I was using earlier. It's like as they privatize, the mind was already privatized, the body becomes privatized, but then they socialize the heart of the military, the sort of care capacities of the military in a really interesting way. They're focusing on different parts of the body. And I I was just wondering, like, why do you, I mean, Jennifer, you wrote the book about this one. (laughs) Why does the military welfare state arise when it does? If it makes sense or not, I also wanted to talk a little bit about McNamara because I think that's also a big shift. So maybe we could talk about McNamara and then Jennifer, we could talk about the military welfare state because I want people to get a real sense of that, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think Mark should tell us about McNamara. All right. I've been rereading some McNamara stuff recently because I'm trying to work on a piece about U.S. defense budget reform since World War II. And there's a lot of interest today in uh, how to reform the so-called PPBS, the, the Pentagon's planning and budgeting system that McNamara and his team put in anyway. Um, I think we have a slightly different take on McNamara than maybe the normal one, right? The, so often when people think about McNamara at the pennant, well, first of all, of course, a lot of people, when they think about McNamara, it's as a villain of the U.S. war in Vietnam and as kind of this tortured figure who semi-apologizes later in life. But then a lot of other people, you know, they, they, t- they think about McNamara coming in with his whiz kids in 1961 and kind of really taking it to the military services and seizing control, right? Um, and, uh, redoing the budget and forcing people to create a much more, what, joint and, and rational budget system and so forth. And that, that budgeting system endures to the present day. So it's a very powerful reform. The McNamara that Jennifer and I write about is um, is kind of uh, you know we, we write about his other these other activities in which as he was doing all this um, work to make the military more efficient as he saw it um, many of his actions tended to move in the direction of what shedding what he saw as excessive. Um, uh, it, installations and excessive capacity that the government owned and that was quite costly. So he was real, of course, he was really into cost cutting. But I think what people don't always think about is the extent to which that the, the way that that cost cutting was pursued was often in directions that favored contracting out and went away from uh, this kind of very long tradition of this kind of mixed U.S. military economy. So then maybe why don't we talk about the military welfare state and its connections in particular to the all-volunteer force, otherwise known as the AVF. Yeah, I mean, the it, you know, it, we, we can think, you know, we've talked about World War II and the switch to the Cold War as important points where we can think about changes in military market relationships in this public-private you know, relationship that we have in the U.S. over time. And we should think about the switch to the AVF as one of those important moments as well. Here, really, what we have is not so much a sudden conflict or maybe a, cha- a, a huge change in U.S. global strategic uh, standpoint, but w- rather what we have is a switch 
in how the U.S. military will recruit and use personnel and how those personnel see themselves within the context of the U.S. military. So the AVF really uh, changes from a kind of demanding uh, draft that people serve in the military, even as there are exceptions to that, to an all-recruited or all-volunteer force. And with the change in that approach to personnel, what happens is, you know, the ability to imagine much longer-term careers, less turnover in the force, you know, fewer kind of short-term enlistments and more long-term enlistments. Imagining everyone uh, sort of might think of themselves then as a career personnel who requires a kind of officerization of the military in its culture, in its provision of services to keep them not only recruited, but most importantly, retained. And so in doing that, I think that part of what happens is another confrontation between what we might think of as military and the market. And that confrontation is between the free market economists who lead the charge for the all-volunteer force, most notably Milton Friedman, but there are others as well uh, who are named on the President's Commission to the All-Volunteer Force and military leaders. And in that confrontation, um, one of the main things that comes up is the elimination of what they call among free marketers institutional benefits that the military provides to its career personnel, the housing, the allowances, um, the hospitals, you know, uh, the recreation facilities. And they say, listen, get rid of those. That is just big government. That's excessive spending. Instead, let's propose higher pay. And like everybody else in the United States, we can let the military purchase whatever support services it needs. Well, this is anathema, really, to a military that sees itself as functioning on the basis of loyalty, cohesion, a reciprocal relationship between leadership and personnel. And they defeat it quite quickly. And I think quite savvily, actually, uh, making the point uh, to members of Congress that it'll be really easy to cut pay and they'll have a hard time recruiting people over time. It's a lot less easy to tear down a hospital or sell it to somebody. It's a lot less easy to take away people's housing once they're committed to it, once they experience that as a lived experience, it's quite hard to take away. And so it grows. And so the switch to the all-volunteer force gets, you know, all kinds of people in Congress across party lines uh, to give support. There are those who just think welfare services are important no matter who gets them, largely Democrats. And there are those who are real big, you know, military hawks, uh, whether Democrat or Republican, who get on board with expanding the capacity of the military to retain its readiness and to keep its recruited, well-trained force. And it, it grows. And even as you might see renewed demands like uh, the Grace Commission, which operates to try to, again, during the 1980s, push more government functions out to the private sector in very much a, a similar way to the Hoover commissions. You get Casper Weinberger saying, yeah, well, not in my military. We're not doing that. That is going to grow <laughs> in the 1980s in-house capacities, particularly in these service areas. So then I just want to ask two questions. Could you talk for a second about how as the, the welfare, the Fordist welfare New Deal state is dismantled, it grows in the military and what that suggests about the military's relationship to society? And then, too, I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about neoliberalism because that's such a major theme in the in the book and in, in your chapter in particular and what your story you think exp- um, 
reveals about neoliberalism? Well, I think to your first question, this question about what, how we explain that the demise of the civilian welfare state in this period and, and the rise of a military one, I think it's really helpful here actually to turn to ideology um, and to kind of a lived culture of militarization in the United States. And here I would just point to the work of people like Michael Sherry, you know, and in the shadow of war remains one of the best synthesis and ways to understand the growth uh, and power of a militarized culture of politics across the spectrum in the United States. And I think, you know, Sherry Marks Reagan really is an apogee uh, of, of that moment. And, you know, anthropologists of the military will talk about the conversion of military personnel to what they call super citizens in this period. And I think it's quite helpful to understand the important political and ideological connections between the military and the state that kind of are, are, are fused and put to work by politicians, particularly, I think, on, on the right and in the Reagan, Reagan himself, but also in the Reagan vein in this period. It doesn't do everything to explain why uh, that happens. I think there's still a real material commitment to making the ADF work. You know, it has to work. It's still new. Um, but I think that that kind of politics goes some way to explaining it. Um, there's a lot more in my book about, you know, the kind of racial and gender coding of the civilian welfare state versus the military welfare state that I think cannot be overlooked and should not be overlooked either. But that, I think, is a short answer. What's interesting to me is that eventually neoliberalism undoes them both, Right. Uh, really the push towards privatization and outsourcing, it comes first to the civilian welfare state, largely actually not so much by replacing it with private sector services as just by cutting it and throwing people on the mercy of the market. Although there is contracting in social welfare, um, and we see it growing in Medicaid job training and areas like that. But I think really what you see um, is that eventually the social, even the social welfare functions of the military look quite lucrative. The healthcare, um, you know, looks quite lucrative and whether it's the VA or the DOD, the housing looks quite lucrative. Even things like the social workers, uh, you know, uh, you know, there are tens of thousands probably hired in the military looks like a quite lucrative market. And that the, the, the pressure then, um, not only from this political cadre that Mark and I have been tracing since, you know, the 1940s, but also from what's become the common wisdom in corporate America and what you see in the training in business schools like the Harvard Business School and, and Wharton has really become dominant. And even the military itself, having sent their officers to these schools, having joined the conference board in 1992, comes to believe that the most efficient and effective way to accomplish even its social welfare goals is, in fact, to put them out to the private sector. And then we see the growth in the 1990s and 2000s of the largest military contractor contracting companies become those that have either bought the uh, real estate companies that built all the housing or their healthcare providers um, who've really you know, diversified into you know, various other social welfare functions as well. So American capitalism is working perfectly as usual. Mark, could you maybe talk for a second about neoliberalism as a key category um, and, and how your story fits into that? Maybe just to situate 
the literature, there's been a lot of literature in the last five or six years, in particular from people looking at the 40s, 50s, and 60s and saying that neoliberalism actually emerges from the New Deal state in a variety of ways, um, and that it's not as sharp a break in the 70s and 80s as, as had been initially narrativized. And I think your work fits into that. Both uh, this, this book fits into that as well. And, and I just want to make listeners um, aware of that. Yeah, Jennifer and I were trying to to that's one thing we were trying to do with our contribution is engage with that broader literature. We thought we had something novel to offer because even though there's a lot of great work on that, as you suggested, um, and, it, and a lot of it's wonderful in that it deals with the global scale, it, you know, really to, honestly more than we do on our own essay, although some of our contributors do more with, with global stories. Um, we did think we had something to offer there by focusing on the military and, and then, as you say, by complicating the chronology. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a maybe a first generation of scholarship that really looked a lot at the, at the 70s and 80s and 90s maybe as the kind of uh, the moment and the ascendance of neoliberalism. And we, you know, as Jennifer was saying earlier, we were kind of tracing a longer run story of push and pull in which we're seeing actually kind of distinct kind of punctuated waves of change in this direction. And as you were saying, you know, I think this does maybe fit in better um, with some of the more recent work. Um, you know, I think we were, we also grappled with how much to use the term, right, as I think as many scholars do. And in the end, I think we decided to use it some, you know, enough to engage with this literature and pay, perhaps not overdo it. Um, Jennifer can add to, to kind of my thinking on this, but it was a little bit of a, a kind of framing challenge, I think. You know, how much to make this a piece that engaged a lot with this much broader literature um, and, you know, kind of how much to focus on that versus uh, some of the other things we were trying to do with the, with our chapter in the volume. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about the neoliberalism literature is that if we think about um, its relationship to the military, I honestly think that it wasn't until like the mid 2010s, like the mid aughts or, or, or up to 2010, after the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, that political scientists started writing about privatization of the military like it was something new. And I think largely because we had new kinds of military service providers on the ground with State Department and the U.S. military in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they really traced it sort of to Cheney. And then it kind of slowly started making its way back in time where it hooked up with a kind of traditional neoliberal narrative of the 70s and 80s. And so what Mark and I are doing is like, just continuing the trek backward when we relocate it really to, you know, this kind of kernel of people in the 1930s and, and, and early 1940s. I'll also say that maybe in that we try to give attention, not only to the institutional um, story about neoliberalism, but a little bit to the cultural one. And I know in my own work, it's definitely very much about the sort of cultural features of independence and self-sufficiency that infuse a neoliberal ideology and help fuel its adaptation to different kinds of environments like social welfare. But even in our own work, I think part of what we're trying to do is recover not just the kind of actual contracts that allow for the contracting out or privatization, but we're also trying to recover the language and ideology of the corporate world at that time 
in which military officers newly infuse themselves in order to really take on and become themselves neoliberals as they are conducting the work of outsourcing and privatizing the military. And so I think one of our contributions is to think about it, not only sort of from a political economy perspective, but a little bit from a political culture and institutional cultural perspective. So we've been going a while and I just want to close um, out. I know Derek has a question and it'll be related to this, but maybe you could just very briefly take us through Clinton and uh, W. Uh, and it, that just basically seems like the, 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 vic- the final victory, uh, as, as it were. And then Derek has a question. Well, that is it. It's the final victory, <laughs> I think. <laughs> you know, and that is, I think, part of, I think that is where we sort of hit that kind of conventional post-70s narrative of the wide uh, adaptation. I guess now Gary Gersel would, uh, who's just written a new book about thinking about neoliberalism uh, kind of as a whole political regime um, in the United States. Political order is the way Gersel would describe it. And I think there what we're looking at is the kind of apogee, what he would call the apogee of that political order when across parties and, and different groups of people, we see the adaptation of... Uh, neoliberal technologies and ideology. And, you know, it's fully embraced by the Clinton administration. And one of the other chapters in our book also really looks then in the 2000s and beyond, this is Dan Worlds's chapter, about you know, the broad scope of this privatization. I mean, honestly, the DOD and VA are kind of they're a big portion of it, but there's NASA, you know, which has actually largely been privatized from the start. There's the Department of Energy. I mean, you go across the board and things that could be privatized were. Each cabinet office got people who were experts in privatization that had come from Wall Street, just like the DOD did, in order to oversee the job and facilitate the contracts and the relationships. Uh, new training was undertaken, you know, by the the military, both you know on the staff side and civilians in the business world and in, in business schools in order to learn how to accomplish this new doctrine was created, uh, to support it. Um, and new goals were set for people who were both in staff and command, um, in order like to, to get the job done down to the level of the installation. I'll just interject. I mean, one thing that's, uh, that we kind of try to close the book with that Danny, that speaks to your question is, you know, maybe, how much further could it go, if at all, um, or whether there's some kind of bounce back at some point in the future? I mean, I think it's we we're kind of um, we're not convinced that there's going to be some kind of major retreat, um, you know, in the future. In part because of these ideological shifts, um, these shifts in people's just basic sensibilities and kind of intellectual horizons about um, how to get stuff done. And I think there's also that, and that, and that over time, that's created a, a kind of accumulation of structures that provide a level of convenience, right? And ease um, to um, public entities and public officers, right? It's just so easy, so much easier to get it done, you know, with the contract in many cases. So I, uh, on the other hand, there is a little pushback, like there is a depot caucus in Congress that wants to preserve some 
of the you know the military's own work and and there is more you know what there there is some more evidence of some industrial policy um, going on now in the U.S. and kind of onshoring and, and so forth. So I think it's an interesting moment to have the book come out where there's there is this kind of big question of whether there could be some kind of big shift in one direction or the other over the next 20 years. Yeah, if you had asked me like 2019 or something after we'd kind of hatched the plan for this book and had it underway, which direction we were going in, I would say what my officers said when I was at the War College. We ended the the class on the military and the market reading Sean McFate's book about private mercenary armies and you know their inevitability kind of in in taking over and I think my uh, the colonels thought that was probably true uh, in, in some way, but I do think the experience of the pandemic that Mark is sort of alluding to, uh, you know, maybe obliquely here in in thinking about what it means to have not only offshored but outsourced uh, so much capacity, relying on the private sector for you know all of the medical interventions in public health that that we needed, not to mention the other kinds of supply chain issues that we've dealt with since then, you know, is kind of changing the conversation. How far that goes, I I really don't know. But if, if there was ever time to kind of recover the contingency of the ways in which things went over to the private sector between the military and the market, like now's the time to recover that and think about it so that people who are making decisions can imagine alternate histories as potential lessons for what they might do right now that at least questions um, the decisions to to continue to privatize and outsource so many important things. So I, I wanted to ask you, but I mean, you sort of started us down that road, Jennifer, but I wanted to ask you both uh, about the rise of mercenaries in the system, um, because this really does seem like the final frontier. We're not talking about contracting out, like cutting paychecks or, or collecting garbage, as friend of the show Don Rumsfeld talked about uh, back way back when uh, we're now contracting out actual combatants um, and I'm I'm curious is this a function of just running out of grist for the privatization mill is it just you know this is the only place left and we're ideologically committed to doing this uh, you know to the to the maximum extent um, you know one of the things that Danny and I talk have talked about on the show is this feels like the next stage in a political project to insulate the, the public from the effects of wars, so you go from the, the draft to the volunteer military, and now you refine that down even further to uh, private contractors, which takes it you know, even further outside of uh, any, any effect that the public would feel. Uh, I'm just curious, in general, you know, how, what your, your view is of where things stand now and where they're likely to head, particularly in something, again, you know, Sir Danny alluded to, to this earlier, in a, in a world where you're privatizing combat functions to these huge private military companies that in a globalized world could have contracts all over the place that wouldn't necessarily align with your national interests. I'm just curious, uh, you know, sort of your, your general kind of take on, on this phenomenon. Well, I think it's really fun to end with the sexy story about military contracting that everyone always started with. And I said, oh, no, I'm just going to tell you a boring one about <laughs> about welfare. And Mark's going to tell you about stuff in real estate. But we're back to it because it really does kind of it, it is the kind of, you know, final tip of the spear, as the military would say. Um, and if you if you privatized all this, you know, the question does uh, remain about this. I mean, it's definitely not an area of my expert 
cheese. And Mark might have an answer that he has about the U.S. I would just say that part of what's important here is actually, and this is not to evade the question, but is to, to sort of widen out to a global experience. And I mean, I, I do think we see a preponderance of evidence as we look at, you know, smaller developing nations and global south of, you know, reliance uh, increasingly on standing up entire militaries, really, that are privatized, right? And I think one of the ones Sean McFate, you know, he talks about his experience in, in doing that in West Africa. Um, but I think, you know, there are also countervailing forces. I mean, for example, Lithuania just reinstituted not only, you know, conscription, but universal military training. And the plan in Lithuania starting, you know, three or four years ago, well in advance of, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, was that the only way to defeat Russia if it came over the border was to have every single man, woman, and child trained in Lithuania to fight. (laughs) And, you know, absolutely, there would be no relying on the private sector for that. That would be a state function. So, these are things that we might not have known about or predicted when asking this, you know, question again back, you know, before pandemic, before this, and and facts on the ground matter. So, I don't know. It does seem like the preponderance of evidence is still toward privatization, but that there are examples of reinstitutions of, you know, profoundly state-driven, you know, public social military function, certainly in personnel, but probably also in other areas. Mark, do you have anything to add to that? Or? Well, no, very, very well said. I mean, and great question, Derek. And I think it is. I mean, the the current war in Ukraine. I think you see things going on on both sides of that, right? Um, and that and that's fascinating. We didn't in our in our volume, to be honest. You know, we didn't um, focus on this too much because there's been a lot of great work on it, as Jennifer suggested, over the last ten or twenty years. But a, a kind of key area. I mean, just one reflection is, you know. One thing that as historians, I think we can be sensitive to is kind of change in, in language and discourse over time. And of course, the current generation of military folks, uh, they use the term warfighter so much, right? They, it's all about serving the warfighter and being a great warfighter. And, and part of that is, is related to this broader change that we've described in the, in a kind of focusing, right, and moving away from all the other tasks that the military had done in the past and toward a more really, what, combat-focused um, uh, military. And in some ways, that would suggest there's going to be kind of hard limits to the use of mercenaries, at least in the current culture, where there's so much like valorizing of the warfighter above all else. Um, so that'll be really interesting to see, I think. Jennifer Middlestadt and Mark Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone check out their book, The Military in the Market. It's truly phenomenal, groundbreaking stuff. And we look forward to having you back either as a team or individually. Thank you again. Thanks, Thank Danny. you.